Hey, folks, I know there are lots of business owners who listen to this show. Maybe some of you never planned on running a business, but now here you are. One thing you've always got to keep in mind is how much you're spending on your operating costs. That's one of the first things we had to keep in mind with WTF. And with things costing more today than they did when we started, you want to keep your expenses down. To reduce costs and headaches, be smart and use NetSuite by Oracle, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. Reduce IT costs, cut the costs of maintaining multiple systems, improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash WTF for more. That's netsuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash WTF. Lock the gate! All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fuck, Nicks? What's happening? What the fuckocrats? What the fuck, publicans? Whatever. What are you doing? Are you cooking? Are you crying? Are you crying and cooking? Is there anything to celebrate? Is today the day we celebrate half of this country's independence from reality and the other half's independence from democracy because of that? What are we doing? Is there anything to celebrate? All I know is today some idiot could set the entire state of California on fire by accident. What's happening? I don't mean to be negative, but at the very least, it seems that people should get together and at least be with other people. Being with other people is important. I think being alone at the keyboard is half, if not 80% of the fucking problem with people's brains right now. Get out in it. How many people out there are hobbled by what they take into their head in terms of how they interact with other people? Today's a day to sort of let it down. If you have plans with other people, be nice. Go. If you didn't think you were going to go to the party, go to the party. Find the person that you can talk to, that you can open your heart a little with. Come on. Get some love, folks. If you can, have a few laughs. Eat some bad food. And then get to the keyboard later. Whatever. But don't don't placate your loneliness by sacrificing the way you think because you're stuck just tumbling down too many rabbit holes. Fourth of July. I'm cooking. I'm recording this yesterday, but uh, I'm prepped. I didn't know I was going to cook. Today, I'm going to talk to Jason Kander today. Uh, Jason Kander is actually the former Secretary of State of Missouri, and he ran for the U.S. Senate in 2016. He's an Army veteran and was an intelligence officer in Afghanistan. And in 2017, Barack Obama called him the future of the Democratic Party. So why is he on this show now? First of all, I talked to him before. Jason Sudeikis put me in touch with the guy in 2017 because Kander was starting up a podcast and he wanted to get some feedback. Turns out he was also starting up a campaign for president, but I didn't know that at the time. And then everything went south for the guy, for Jason. The PTSD he'd been suffering from for 11 years Uh, was overtaking him. He was consumed by depression and suicidal thoughts. So he had to put everything on hold in order to get the help he needed. Now he's got a book coming out, Invisible Storm, A Soldier's Memoir of Politics 
and PTSD. And I talked to a lot of people about the impact of trauma in their lives and how it affects them moving forward, but never from the perspective of a military veteran. He also has a lot of insight about the reality of a life dedicated to public service. So I had him on, and today's the day. As the, uh, as the country crumbles, let's talk to a guy that has dedicated his life, and, and a lot of it, to, to, to civic duty, service in general. Uh, I thought it would be appropriate. Uh, I'm about to cook a pie. This was yesterday, and I've just I've rubbed down a large brisket. It was so weird because I'm not I'm going to a party. And I was just planning on bringing a pie, a chess pie. I have a great recipe for southern chess pie. That was the plan. Bring a pie, and then I was at Whole Foods, and they had this perfectly trimmed whole brisket, and I was like, oh my god, that thing's beautiful. I'm going to buy it and freeze it, and I'll use it when I you know when I have a party or something. I just was I'd never seen. A, a, such a perfectly trimmed whole brisket at Whole Foods or anywhere really. And I fucking bought it. And then I texted uh, the wife of the dude um, whose house I'm going to. And I said, I have a brisket. You want me to bring it? She's like, yeah, I'm going to do my pulled pork, but bring a brisket. We'll have both. I'm like, fuck yeah, we will. So then I got to get up. If I, if you're listening to this, I've probably been up since five smoking a brisket, making big decisions, getting all into the food prep, man. Getting all into the food prep. Not for celebration. Maybe for, like, who knows when the fires will come. Who knows how long this this government looks like the one we grew up with or the one that we aspire to be. But I do know I'm going to be spending time with people I enjoy, people I love. And uh, all I can say to you is that, you know, despite how horrible everything is, you know, if you have an opportunity to spend time with people you like today and you're not doing it because you're sad, go do it. Don't fucking, don't cry and cook for yourself. Go cry with people and have someone else cook for you. So listen, Jason Kander, as I mentioned uh, earlier, I, I kind of told you about him, but his book, Invisible Storm, A Soldier's Memoir of Politics and PTSD is available tomorrow, July 5th, wherever you get your books. All right, this is me talking to Jason Kander. Sometimes I wish I paid more attention in school, or in some cases, any attention at all. There are probably a lot of things I could have gotten more out of, like literature, and now it's probably not in the cards to go back to school and study the classics. But luckily for us, there's a new podcast called The Foxed Page that dives deep into the best books of all time. This is basically like the best possible college English class, but more relaxed and fun. No pressure of grades or needing to prepare something to say in class. It's only the books you want to read and know about presented by best-selling author Kimberly Ford. Everything from Cormac McCarthy to Madame Bovary, from classics like Frankenstein to modern hits like Lessons in Chemistry. I love Ireland, but I missed the boat on James Joyce. The Fox Page has a three-part series on Dubliners, and that's a pretty great starting point. Want to get the most out of what you read? The Fox Page is for you. Get it now wherever you get your podcast. You and I have texted on and off over the years, and I, I remember you saying that uh, you know you were listening to the show to, to get through the uh, the trauma, yeah, well, the I mean, PTSD it, process. Yeah, it's nice to like 
listen to somebody who's talking about their shit when yeah. I was dealing with my shit. Yeah. Know? Yeah, for sure. So, and yeah. And, uh, you also, I don't know if you remember this, when I started my podcast, you like, right. had a, like a really, it was a super helpful, I mean, it was only like a half hour, but- We talked. Yeah. And, yeah. And I remember, I, Sudeikis introduced us, because I was like, I'm starting this podcast, he had just done the show, and I yeah. was like, and I listened to Marin, can you introduce us? And uh, and you said something that I've thought about a lot, because I'm not like a naturally good interviewer, and you said, you find a thread- and you just pull the thread until the thread's gone. <laughs> and that's really just what I do. And it works out? It works great. Yeah. <laughs> it's huge. Well, there, it's a weird thing, but you learn to identify it, you know, and you can you can find it if you're like thinking about when you're like doing research or trying to talk to somebody. I mean, but usually it happens when you're talking to somebody mm -hmm. where you realize there's a, a tonal shift somehow. Yeah. And you can just kind of move through it. Well, you, you told me that. The other thing you said was, I was really struggling with, I was like, because it was before I had like announced that I was not going to be running for anything. Yeah. And so, you know, I was also having to deal with the whole, you got to make, episodes have to be about issues and all this stuff. And Who was, who was saying that? Uh, like your constituents, your your my, potential constituents. Uh, I would say more like my consultants and probably me driving myself to think like I had yeah, to yeah, drive yeah, yeah. toward this idea. And so then, uh, I remember I told you I was like, yeah, I, I get in these conversations. I think they're going to be about one thing, and and I find something interesting, but it's not what the episode is supposed to be about. And you go, well, do you record your intros before or after you talk to the people? And I was like, after. And you go, well, then why don't you just decide what the episode's about then? And I remember thinking. <laughs> Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> so that's what I did. Yeah, you don't have to, after the fact, you don't have to go like, I fucked this one up. Yeah. <laughs> like, I really wanted to talk to him about this, but I didn't. Yeah, I was like, oh, super interesting thing you just said, but that's not actually what we're here to talk about, which <laughs> yeah, makes yeah. no sense. Well, I mean, but that does happen in the world of politics. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I mean, like I've talked to, uh, politicians will talk about what they want no matter what they're asked. Yeah. It's kind of an amazing thing. It's, it, <laughs> you can just sit there. Like, there are people that are very good at it mm -hmm. where you just sit, you ask them one question, they'll be like, that's interesting, but what I'm thinking about, well, okay. <laughs> well, I picture it as like, like remember RoboCop? Yeah. Where RoboCop had like, mm -hmm. when they would show you through RoboCop's eyes and you'd see the drop-down menu come down. Oh, yeah. Trying, so when I was doing interviews as a politician, it was yeah. like there was a drop-down menu. It was like, you'd be asking a question, but I'm looking at my drop-down menu to think about which yeah. question do I want to answer. Yeah. And how can I and how can I kind of uh, uh, bend this into their questions about a little bit? How do I make the listener forget that that's not the fucking question at all? <laughs> like, And there lies the skill. Right. Yeah. Once you can fake that. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, it's weird because like going over this stuff... There's a lot of things happening today, and then also when, when I think about how, you know, there was pressure on you from, I mean, in 2016, when you ran, right? Mm -hmm. For Senate, yeah. For Senate, that there was, you know, Obama was like, when it came down to like, what's the Democratic bench? And you're like, we got this one guy. <laughs> we got this guy. There's one guy on the bench, <laughs> this candor guy in Missouri. Yeah. And then, and then that's when the spiral happened. Yeah, I mean, that... It, I didn't know that then, but then I was like, "Oh, this is it! I'm, yeah. I'm this is my you're going to be moment. president. Yeah, yeah, going to run for president. Yeah, I was like, oh, 
I'm discovered. You know, like so. The, the, the chronology of that part of it was that you had run for Senate, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you lost, but not by much. But you did that amazing ad. Yeah, that got everybody like it's this ad of you assembling a gun with a blindfold on mm-hmm. as a Democrat and and, and then, being for gun control. Right, right, right. Yeah. It was it was genius, right? But then every Democrat it was sort of like, oh my God, this guy knows how to talk to them. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like an anthropological experiment. It's, it's, yeah. He's he's got their attention, and mm-hmm. they they kind of get it. Yeah, yeah, no, that's you're right. It was like, well, so yeah, to set it up, uh, Hillary lost my state by 19 on the day that I lost by 2.8. So, yeah. which meant a whole bunch of people voted for Trump and then voted for my liberal ass, right? right. So, so the, yeah, people were like, how? How right, did that right. happen? What's the magic? And, well, you got to get a gun and a blindfold. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, well, and the funny thing was, is like, I was just saying, well, I say the same stuff y'all say. I just say it like somebody from where I'm from. Right. You know? Yeah. And I think people wanted like a more complicated answer, but that was, that was mostly it. Um, well, know. it just seems like there is a, a way to talk about this stuff without, but I mean, we don't have to get into, you know, what politics has become and, and, and that type of fight of language. We can you talk can, about whatever you want. That's, no, that's no, why know, people listen to your show. Well, no, but I mean, but it's sort of it, like, cause I've been to your state. It's, it's, <laughs> we appreciate it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and the, the other guy, the senator, <laughs> Josh Hawley's like a scary guy to me. He, he is very much like a scary guy. And like, but the, the thing that scares me the most about him just in talking about politics, mm-hmm. is like he's a highly educated, mm-hmm. intentionally scary guy. Yeah. That, you know, he's calculating and how he wants to maintain and hold power. And God knows what happens when a guy like that gets it. Yeah. Josh Hawley is a guy doing an impression of a guy who you would want to be the, like what i mean is like like there was a moment in Josh Hawley's campaign for senate where he like tweeted out some photo of himself and said like sometimes you got to give a speech in the back of a pickup truck or whatever yeah. and i remember Claire McCaskill as opponent was like that's a flatbed truck yeah. and and like to me that's Josh Hawley right like right. there's this guy like i got no problem with the fact that he's very highly educated and all those things i got a problem with him not being able to decide which world he wants to live in. He wants to be the educated guy who uses the $5 words, but he also wants to pretend that, like today, they asked him today, you know, what do we do about mass shootings? And he's like, and he's, I, I don't have an answer to that question because obviously he doesn't want to say like anything about guns. So he has to pretend it would never occur to him. He has to play dumb about things, which I think is kind of insulting. Right. But like, but what he doesn't play dumb about is, is very repressive and destructive yeah. culturally. Right. I mean, yeah. Oh yeah. So, so it's scary. I agree. Yeah. But, uh, but like, so what happens you know what? How did you recognize the pressure that was on you? Your reaction to it—that you would possibly be, you know, presidential hopeful in 2020. How did you, as just a guy who's a, a smart guy and a Jewish guy, mm-hmm. and I'm not going to, you know, characterize that in any certain way, <laughs> that be, which I do, but like, it's how fine. do you, how do you know you're losing your shit? Not because of of fear of expectation or or insecurity, and and in, instead it's PTSD. Yeah, like what's that realization? Well, I mean, how did yeah. you know you were you weren't just fucking yourself? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like I didn't know. know for like the longest time. Like <laughs> I'd say mm, eleven years. <laughs> I, 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 you know, it's well. That's the thing is, uh, the army does, and I, I wrote about this a little in the book, but I, I kind of wish I'd gotten into it a little more. There's this necessary form of brainwashing, right? Like where the moment you get off the bus for basic, the message to you is. You know, uh, 
what you're doing is no big deal, right? It's ground into you. What you're doing is no big deal. And then you go and you deploy. What you're doing is no big deal. And that's necessary because, like, for me as an intelligence officer to keep going into these rooms that I might not get out of or for somebody else to do some other job, if you don't believe that what you're doing is no big deal, like, you're not going to do it. The problem is nobody turns that off. And so whether you're thinking you're going to run for president like I was or you know, you're doing any other job, if you're struggling with this stuff, but you've got it on good authority from everybody you ever met in the United States Army that what you did was no big deal, well, then what's going on with you can't be PTSD because you didn't earn PTSD. Right. So you, you're, you're, in a way, it's it's some sort of uh, uh, gaslighting almost. Yeah. It's a, yeah. It's like an, it's an indoctrination. Yeah. You know, right. I, mean, I mean, well, that's like, right. Well, that's the repetition with Marines. And uh, then mm-hmm. also, like, I think I imagine as the serve, as the military has evolved, there's there's an element of like, this is the job. Yeah, it's right. There's it's a profession yeah. for sure, but it's also everybody knows something, someone who did more than them, right? And as long as, in which every you you show me a Medal of Honor recipient, and yeah. they will tell you about somebody who did more than them. It, right, it doesn't matter. And also the the language around trauma in general is expanded now. Right. Like it, it seems that you know it is the word. Mm-hmm. You know whether yeah. it's you know it always started out with with military PTSD, but now mm-hmm. it's like you know. Badly parented people, victims of abuse. I, I yeah. mean, everybody's got a mild PTSD. Yeah. I would imagine the entire culture post COVID, which is sort of the the drive of my new hour, mm-hmm. that there is PTSD from. I mean, we were thought we were all going to die right for months. Well, it, it could be that uh, car accident, losing somebody. Like, yeah, it, you know, it, it's anything that. Uh, you, you can get stuck on and you know and people always ask me like other veterans will ask me well why does it happen to this person not that person and I'm like I have no idea well but you, but yours sort of manifested in terms of you know when you became aware of it you know stopped you from your political career yeah I got to a point where <laughs> you know the way I talk about it is um, rock bottom is the international capital of zero fucks left to give like, yeah and that's I so it wasn't like I sometimes I have hard time I know I should give myself more credit for yeah. like I made a choice that was right for me and for my family and all that but at the time I was like well I'm done now <laughs> you know it was like I can't I, I can't keep going I, I'm exhausted and I was I was scared because I was having suicidal ideation at that point. And it, and so I just got to a point where I was like, I, I'm I'm afraid of continuing. I was afraid of not continuing because I didn't know what my life would be like. It was the only thing that was going well for me was my professional life. Um, but I also I just came to a point where I didn't feel I had a choice. And and once I called the Veterans Crisis Line and talked to somebody who spoke to me with a tone that said to me like, oh. I guess I actually sound like everybody else who calls this number. Where I I had been telling myself, <laughs> right, right. "Well, I'm not like everybody else. I didn't earn it." When it, but when they talked to me and they didn't seem in in any way either impressed or uh, underwhelmed sure. by my trauma, I was right. like, "Oh, I guess this happens. I guess that's me." Yeah, yeah. And it was very upsetting, but there was also a part of it, particularly when I was diagnosed, that was, you know, like anything else. Well, it's, it's odd good to get an answer. It, it, odd because the, the VA treated the the condition the same way they treated your job in the army yeah this happens right. this is what you do yeah it's nothing yeah right B- yes but the va was like 
but we know what to do about this. Right, right. Which is the difference between the VA and the Army, right? It's but there. I mean, I'm saying what the, 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 the thing that caused it. Oh, sure. Well, yeah, the, 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 the thing, they, they just keep telling you that this is just what it is, right? That yeah. you said that this is normal, yes. this is normal, this is normal. Yeah. And then you got PTSD, and they're going like, yeah, this is normal, <laughs> yeah, this they're, is normal. They're like, oh, did we not mention? Yeah, yeah. that's going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> Same government that told me, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. Which, in that case, was comforting, because then you sit in a chair and you talk to somebody who never is like, that's weird right of course <laughs> you know yeah. i mean i can't like i mean i yeah i mean i have to imagine it's their primary issue mm-hmm. in terms of how they approach it because you know they're you know you're fortunate you're, you're not you, as you said that you, your case was whatever the context was and how you experienced it but some people get into drug addiction some people right. like don't make it some people do kill themselves some yeah. people never come out of it so yeah. what was the treatment did you do an emdr I didn't. Um, oh. That was the next option. Like, so I did cognitive processing therapy, and I did prolonged exposure. And then I was told early on, like, we're going to try these, and then if we don't make progress with these, we're going to do e- EMDR. And I'm also open to at some point I may do EMDR. Yeah. H- have you done it? Yeah. What I mean, what? Uh, do it's, you like, well, it's, it well, well, yeah. I mean, it's one of those things where you're like, is this working? <laughs> yeah. But I, I mean, uh, but it, they have success with it. Yeah. And you know, I did it for you know once it when Lynn passed, and a mm-hmm. few months after that, when I was specific, I think it helps if it's specific. Yeah. If it's broad, it's a little tricky. Like if it's just sort of like mm, my childhood was bad. Right. If you can lock into an event. Yeah. That you can identify. As, as a trauma trigger or the trauma, mm-hmm. and you kind of process back from that, mm-hmm. I, I think it does something, even if it's just the process yeah. of, of making the connections. There, there's a way it goes, you know, whether the buzzers or the light movement, whether that's doing it or, or, or the actual methodology of it, I don't know. But my, my, my sponsor uh, is a practitioner, oh, so yeah. I, I got hip to it, mm-hmm. you know, and then, I, then later I, I did it with somebody around, uh, yeah, the lens death. Well, what, what I think has the similarity between it and cognitive processing yeah. and prolonged exposure is you got to go through the trauma. Like that's, that's really right. You can't, it's oh, not, yeah, yeah. It, you got to get there. Right. And, yeah. and that's, and that's what I had been avoiding for 11 years is it, I, what I found out is the only way out is through. But primarily because you didn't think your experience in combat was, was worthy of having this particular ailment. Yeah. At first that was like a hundred percent of what it was. And then over time, it was like, well, uh, I don't think that I earned, quote unquote, earned PTSD, yeah. right? But I also was like, eh, well, now I'm in politics. So like, even when I got to the point where I was like, I should, like, I, I filled out paperwork at one point for the VA, but didn't answer all the questions, honestly, because I was worried about, I mean, look, I, I, I was thinking I want to be commander in chief, like pretty soon. Yeah. Like, can the commander in chief have, you know. Suicidal ideation. Right. And like, like that's a glass ceiling. I'm not really in a hurry to break. And. I, I imagine they all do in moments. Yeah. May, maybe. Well, I don't know. Lincoln. and I Sure. Think. Sure. So the treatment took how long? Uh, it was about five months. And, yeah. And it, so it was like a five-month weekly treatment course. But like leading up to it, though, you, your life was pretty – like, I mean, what, let's go back. I mean, because – so your family – how many – you got brothers and sisters? Mm-hmm, yeah, I got a, a younger brother, and then I got like a mess of what we call unofficial foster brothers, like kids who were in the house growing up. A lot of kids? Took oh, really? Yeah. So your kids uh, – your 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 parents were in what – what was their – So my parents met as juvenile probation officers, and then my dad was a cop part-time, and then he had like a security business. And- See, I love this. See, just because like, y- you know – People have the wrong idea about Jews. <laughs> well, and, before you make me out to be too blue collar, yeah. I want to be. 
my great uncle also is like a Broadway composer. So well, that's like, all right. I'm just saying I'm just, that there, there's a working class Jewish element. Like as a Jewish as a Jewish kid, you know, there's this idea of exceptionalism, which is true. Yeah. But I remember when I worked in a deli in Boston. You know, and these guys would come in, these old men, mm-hmm. and there was like, you know, a Jewish cop, there yeah. was a Jewish plumber, these guys, that, you know, that come up, but they were, I mean, probably first generation guys, yeah. but there was just, there was a Jewish working class at one oh, point. Oh, sure. We weren't always just elitist liberals from Hollywood judging yeah. people. Yeah, we're, right. I mean, <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, How'd your parents get there? You had a, wait, you, so your great uncle mm-hmm. is a Broadway, like a big Broadway composer. Yeah, so that's why it's always funny for me to like, like my dad, you know, he made the choice to do this public service yeah. work, but then like his sister's a composer and then like his brother lives out here and, and was in the entertainment business. Really? So his father's so, brother? So his father's brother is the Broadway composer, John Kander, Kander and Ab, like Chicago yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, and yeah. Cabaret. Oh yeah, those are big. Yeah, New York, New York. And, and he's still around? He's still writing, man. He's really? Got How old is he? He's not, he just turned 95. Wow. He's like, and if you met, you'd be like, this dude is late 70s, that's uh-huh. what you'd think. And yeah. he's working on a show for next year. And he just lives in the city? He, uh, they, he and uh, his husband, my uncle Albert, live up in uh, Ulster County like oh, okay. now, um, but, but they- they go back and forth. Yeah, the yeah. City. Pandemic, they pretty much moved up. Oh to my! The, to and the so, country. what did your your grandfather do? Uh, so, Pop was he he was in basically he was a businessman who wanted to do a lot more than that. But he was like he he turned around the family chicken business, which I never really understood, other than my dad explained that. He once saw where they had an assembly line where they had to slit the throats yeah. of chickens. And yeah. my dad was like, I don't want to be in this business. <laughs> my grandpa didn't either and turned it around, sold it, and got out of there. And then spent the last 20 years of his career uh, as the development director for the Lyric Opera of Kansas City, which is all he ever really wanted was to be in the arts, but he wasn't He wasn't artistically inclined. So you come from, you're like how many generations of Missouri? Uh, so I'm fifth generation. My kids are sixth in Kansas City, which is pretty rare for Jews. That, how'd they get there originally? Uh, so down, th- it's Milwaukee, uh, down yeah. to like several generations. I don't know. My grandpa wrote a little thing for us once that yeah. said, in the beginning there was the word and the word was Meyer because Meyer Kander was the first. That was the guy? Kander in Kansas City. Who made yeah. it to the mid, they went to the Midwest. Yeah. And I don't, he, he knew the whole lineage and I got to look back through it, but like, um, yeah, that's basically it. I think it came from like somewhere in Switzerland originally. Uh-huh. Oh um, yeah! Oh really? There's a like a Kander River there. No kidding. Or something. Yeah. So they came over like early on in the almost in the in the in the Wild West. Yeah. Like my, I think Kanders have been in the U.S. for it's got to be like ten generations now. Right. Because I think a lot of them came over on a land deal to farm the Midwest. You know, when you're fifth generation and Jewish in a town like Kansas City, like every Jew I knew growing up was my cousin or, yeah. or something. <laughs> yeah. And so what, and so well, I- You knew the community because you go to the temple and they're all there. Yeah, it's when like, I didn't even hardly go, like yeah. I'm Jewish. Yeah, like, right. I, you know, I hardly went to temple. It was right. like weddings and funerals. Yeah. So like when I went to school on the, on the East Coast, all of a sudden I was around all these Jews who would be like, hey, you're a Jew. And I'd be like, yeah, I sure am. Like whatever that is, I'm <laughs> yeah, learning right. right now. Right. And so the funny thing about it is, so my wife who, you know, we met when we were 17, she came as a refugee of anti-Semitism in Ukraine, her family when she was uh, eight. And so I always have kind of jokingly said in order to marry a Jewish girl from Kansas City, I, to be safe, I married an immigrant. Yeah. But the funny part about that is my grandfather was the president of 
um, the uh, Jewish vocational service or Jewish family services, which was like the resettlement agency in Kansas City. He's the one who like prioritized bringing these Jews from the Soviet Union into Kansas City, and then his grandson married one. That so was... you have Ukrainian in-laws? Oh yeah, yeah. And they yeah. are they're all here? Yeah, they're all here. Yeah. Oh my God! So do they have family there now? No family, but they know some people. Oh, and so it, that's been uh, it's been interesting because like they're looking at it and it's the first time I've seen them sort of really acknowledge like that there's things going on there still because up until now it's always been like well that place didn't want it didn't want us that place being the Soviet Union at yeah. the time and now it you know cut to they elect a Jewish president with 70 plus percent of the vote right yeah. and so it's like it doesn't necessarily change their view of what of where they came from but it, they feel more connected to it now sure. I think yeah. whereas my wife is like She's like, uh, you know, I was born in Kansas City. She wasn't, but to her, she's like, I got enough. I'm not going to deal with that too. Oh right, you know, which I get. And you got kids? Yeah, 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 two kids. So you're growing up in Kansas City, and and what? How? I, I mean, how was? Uh, did you deal with anti-Semitism? Not really. No, um, because I mean, you know, you would every once in a while the same way that. You, you, when you're a kid, your friends find a thing yeah, about sure. you oh, to yeah, make yeah. fun of. I mean, yeah, but nothing real. I don't know. Like in Albuquerque, yeah. probably very similar, right? Like people didn't know enough what a Jew was to know how to be anti-Semitic. Yeah, you know, I, oddly, that's still sort of prevalent. To, yeah, yeah. <laughs> people not knowing what Jews are. Yeah, there's a there's a wide swath. I mean, some people would accuse me of not knowing what Jews are. <laughs> well, me too. Because of yeah, it's a yeah. But like, no, I I get it. Yeah, there was definitely a thing. But like my parents and grandparents dealt with it, especially yeah. my grandparents. But for me, I was like. I mean, and then I went to Catholic high school, so it was so like my brother. Yeah, I mean, for me that was like, oh, I was a really good way to get your dad's attention, like yeah. taking me out on a date. So like, yeah. it, it was fine, <laughs> yeah, you know. Yeah, the, yeah. And the priests, like, they wanted to convert the Protestant kids, and they figured I was beyond their yeah. reach, so I got left alone. So, what were you doing as you were growing up, though? I mean, what when did politics become sort of a vision? I mean, did you have other ideas for yourself? I mean, what were you driving to? Oh, I was going to play center field for the Kansas City oh, so Royals. Baseball yeah. guy. Yeah, that was, that was I was playing baseball, and that was my whole life. And then, really, just sort of that. that yeah, was it. and yeah, it was simple. I was like, that's and, and you were good. Played in high school, college. I played in high school. I was I was good. I wasn't like. It became readily apparent that maybe you're not going to be on the. Yeah, like about about <laughs> sophomore year, I was yeah. like, I really like baseball and I'm pretty good. I don't think I'm going to be making a living doing this. And then debate came along, so I kept doing baseball. But uh, I realized, oh, I'm pretty good at this, and like, I did actually get scholarship offers for that. For I, debate? Yeah, I didn't. Stupidly, I ended up going to a college that had neither a debate nor a baseball team. I don't know how that Where's happened. That? American University. In, in DC? DC, yeah, 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 and then uh, so then um, you know we started a little debate team, my brother and I for like a year, and then realized like, hey, we're in the nation's capital where there's a lot of other stuff to do. Yeah, and you went to college with your brother? Yeah, one of my like unofficial foster brothers. Mel. Okay, yeah, yeah well, so explain we, that to me. So your parents were. It's uh, like a really weird term to throw around, but I'm so used to it. Unofficial foster brother. They just didn't come through the foster system. My folks were juvenile probation officers. Yeah, so they, so they just said, like, okay, come live with us. Pretty much. Like, <laughs> that was their deal. Like, they, they like, I had friends. You can't friends. go home. Come at our house. Come no, at our house. you've pretty much explained it. Like, huh. because, like, I had friends whose families were struggling in one way or the other, and it wasn't even like we sat down at the table and my parents were like, hey, we're thinking of Mel or Justin or yeah, yeah. Dan like coming to live here. They were like, so 
they're going to be here now. We're like, great. <laughs> How many are you talking? Uh, over the course of time, there were you know three or four. It was at different times, but like, yeah. so when I refer to, my son gets really confused by this when I refer to like who his uncles are yeah, and uh, and like who my brothers are. And but it's interesting like, with, father. how old were you though? Like, because like, I mean, to build that bond and to accept it, I mean, you must've been pretty young. I mean. Yeah. It started when I was in elementary school and then just like, and and so, like a couple of kids coming in through elementary school and then high school. And, Wild. And yeah, and they, I mean they're all all the groomsmen at my wedding and my closest friends still. That's amazing. Yeah. And both are you folks alive still? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Are they still working? Um, yeah. My well, my dad is my so my dad has uh, like an upper neuron issue, but he's able to do what a lot that? from home. Uh, it's like a version of ALS, oh, okay. um, but it's like long course and like he can still drive and walk and talk but it's labored yeah and he uh he's a he was a private pilot and he he buys and sells airplanes so he can do a lot of it over email oh and uh you know they always a private pilot uh has been like it was like his way of rebelling when he was in reform school i think when he was like 16. you went to reform school yeah my dad's got like a whole other great story you know (laughs) Um, (laughs) he was the the like the rebellious kid who became a cop and yeah. then okay. and then I think became like a rebellious cop I'm not sure and, oh yeah and then uh, but yeah um, he uh, so he does that and then um, my mom uh, she stopped working when I was real young and raised us and they got health issues but you know what they make it to every one of my kids games every one of my baseball games because I still play and I see you still play all the time. yeah I play in the still think you got a shot I mean, in my mind, deep in my the recesses of my mind. No, yeah, man, I play in an over thirty wood bat league, and I think about it way too much. My wife would tell you I talk about it way too much. I keep seeing. It's nice though if you got a good sport and you got a healthy sense of competition. Yeah, I think that's important. I don't have that. Everything's very threatening to me. <laughs> well, that gives you things to run away from. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> or just to, like take very personally. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean. Yeah, that was me until I found baseball again. I think. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, 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 yeah. So, so the debate thing led to an interest in politics, or you didn't have that until you came back from the war. I had an interest in, I, I had an, I had a, a somewhat interest, but it wasn't like my family it would talk. We would talk politics at dinner. It yeah. was like my parents were public service oriented, and yeah. so we would talk about the news. And then, yeah, debate like policy debate in high school. I actually at first thought. I'm really good at giving speeches. Hmm. And then I realized, oh, no, I, I actually, like, I'm really into this stuff, this policy stuff. Um, and and then it was in college when I realized, like, oh, no, I, I want to run for office. I didn't know what the hell that meant. I just, yeah. I want to run for office. And then by law school, I was like, all right, that's what I'm going to do. And I kind of figured out what that would look like, and we'd move back to Kansas City. What changed with going to Afghanistan was... You know, I was a political science major before that and everything. So, like, I saw politics as, it was like a game. It was just an extent. I, I couldn't play baseball anymore. This was competitive. I knew what I thought. And you went to law school? Yeah, I did. I, it stayed in D.C. Went to Georgetown. So, you got um, a law degree and everything? Yeah, got a law degree. And You're everything. a lawyer. I'm I'm a recovering lawyer. Yeah. I'm a, I, like, I don't have to sit for the 15-hour Who knows, in the last courses. four or five years would be the biggest boon for lawyers ever. Yeah. And I would miss the whole thing. So, well, good, because <laughs> it's the worst kind of law. It's, it's just like everyone's suing everyone. Yeah. Because that's what people do now to worm out of stuff. Yeah. it's uh, There's a lot of performative yeah. stuff now. And, but also, I, I didn't really like being a lawyer that much. I was just, I had a political science degree, and I was like, well, now I guess I do this. Right. And, okay, yeah, sure. Well, so then when I went to Afghanistan, that was the first time I'd ever been on the receiving end of 
decisions made of by policy. politicians. Yeah, that like negatively affected my life. Well, well, like, why'd you go to Afghanistan though? Out of all, like, you were set up. You know, it, it seems like you could have had a life without that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, it, for me, it was I was in D.C. when nine eleven happened, and I had grown up. My my grandpa had yeah. been and like everybody's grandpa, right? Been in World War Two, you know, but. I guess to me, it just always made sense. Like, there's a war, you go, and really, that's and it wasn't. I wasn't like from a military family, right? Mm. I just, but you were from public servants, yeah. And I think, and and I don't think they intended. Like, if you had gone back in time and been like, so if you continue in this direction, he's going to the army. I'm not sure that my parents were super. How did they react to that? They were scared for me, but they knew like you're not going to talk me out of it. And so 9/11 happened, and I was like, well. I'm going to go, I'm going to do this. So then, and then I, you know, when you, you do the training, you, you do all of it. Where were you ideologically with that though? What, well, what I was, was your... opposed to the war in Iraq. Right. But I mean like, but when 9-11 happened, where did your brain go in terms of where we stood as a country? Uh, you know, this, I, I don't know how you feel about it. I feel like it was so much more simple then, right? Mm-hmm. It was like, we were attacked. We hadn't gone into this phase of our, of our democracy where everything was a fight. And I felt like we were attacked. We're going to war. I want to go to war against the people who attacked us. And, I, and so I, yeah, so like you, 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 you weren't down a a kind of lefty wormhole with you know who's to blame? Chickens coming home to roost. Where is it? No. Was it was it Saudi driven? Any of that stuff? No, I was like people my age, like particularly men my age, are going to go. Mm. And who the hell am I to be like? But I don't. I shouldn't have to. Mm. It's just how I saw it. And and so then. But it was a choice. Oh, it was 100% a choice. And professors, like at my school, for instance, would look at, like, I, at the time I was on crutches because I had hurt my knee and I had to get surgery and, and physical therapy to go into the Army. And they looked at me like I was an absolute crazy person. Yeah. They're like, you, you, like, you're convincing the Army to take you? <laughs> and, yeah. But to me, it just made sense. I don't know if I'd been Vietnam era, I don't, maybe I'd make a totally different choice. But at that time, that made sense to me. I didn't think the war in Iraq made any sense, but I also was like, by that point, I was training to go, and I was like, well, some of these people I'm friends with are going to go. How am I going to be like, they'll go, I'll stay. Uh-huh. And But it was when I How was there. Uh, so when 9-11 happened, I was 20. Oh, okay. Um, and so, you know, I was what, what you would refer to as a military-aged male. Yeah. Right? Like in other countries, that's what they'd call it. So you went to law school when you got back? I got to law... No, I went to law school while I did ROTC. So I... I Instead of like becoming like an army lawyer, I did all the training to become an officer while I was in law school. Oh, okay. So you enlisted, you did ROTC, mm-hmm. and yeah. then you're in law school, and then and then you go. So the war had been going go. on for a while. Yeah. So I got there in 06 okay. to Afghanistan. And uh, yeah. And like, but by that time, what, hadn't you educated yourself around what might have- <laughs> Well, I was educated already. <laughs> no, I know that. But like at 29-11 happens, but it's just sort of like the politics around the Afghanistan war uh, were dubious. Uh, I don't, at that time, I still felt like, well, this mission still makes sense, okay. right? Yeah. But but that said, it's still a, a good question, but the frame of mind I was in at that point was like, yeah, I was a guy who was thinking he was going to run for office, but really- So that was there. It was there, but yeah. I was like, more than that, I was, at that point, I was a soldier, right? Yeah, at that right. point, like, to me, I was thinking much less by that point about the politics of it all and much more like, I was just doing my job and 
and like doing what the other people around so me. So the, the right ROTC thing started that that you can this, you got a job to do. This is normal, and we're got gonna... a job to do, and it became an I. It, it was who I was. It became my identity. Like I went from being like a law student who did ROTC to like by the time I'm in intelligence school, getting ready to go, I'm like I'm an army officer. That's how, yeah. Was that your choice? You could specialize. Yeah, I chose I, because uh, of ROTC or what. Uh, well, as a reservist, you, which is what I was going in to be, you can sort of, if you find a spot that where they need you, they'll send you to the school for that thing. Oh. And, uh, and so I didn't want to be a lawyer in the army. I felt like there was going to be plenty of time to be a lawyer yeah, the rest sure. of my life. And, yeah. and I thought I could do a good job as an intelligence. I had this idea that sounds so corny, but like in my head, and I still believe this, like I felt like if I did my job well, I could help other people get home safe. And Back then, it was that simple to me. Yeah, and I don't. I never got the opportunity to feel like I achieved that, but I think most people don't, which is the problem. So when, when okay, when you say that was what you wanted to do, going in, being an intelligence officer, how did you think that that fit in? What were you, what what did you think was the going to be the result of your work? Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> um, yeah, because like you go you go over and you have an idea of like what war is going to be. Yeah. Um, and then like most other things, it's not that at all. Like that's not what it is. So when I got there, you're not in the trenches. No, you're not, not, not anymore. Right. It's not world war. It's not that kind of war anymore. Right. And, and you're, and even then you kind of, in your mind's eye, like in the movies, they never show guys just sitting around bored, <laughs> you know, or, which is part of it or well, hot or cold. Well, or, they're usually in, in a large tent like structure and. <laughs> Then all of a sudden they go out in a jeep and you're hoping, uh, what is it, a, a IED? Is that what it's yeah, it doesn't, doesn't blow you up? Right. And so that I experienced, you know, the whole like hoping that I don't blow up. Got, I got my fill of that. Uh, that I got that. But I, I guess, you know, as an intelligence officer, like I went to intelligence school and they they teach you all these things and they go, you'll never get to do this because you're a second lieutenant. You're a low ranking officer. You'll never get to do this or that. I show up and the thing about war is like the person in charge of a unit they just got to work with what they got. So I show up and they're like, okay, well, we have this job and this job. One was like an analyst to work the night shift. And yeah. the other was, we need somebody to go out and figure out uh, who of all these people in the Afghan government and military, who of them are like really corrupt and are working with the enemy. And, and we need somebody to figure that out, but we also need somebody to go out and find out the information. And I was, what, 25 years old and convinced I was bulletproof so I didn't hesitate I was like yeah that job I want that job oh so and you're going in sitting down with people with a translator yep yeah that was my you, gig so are you still in touch with your translator mm -hmm. yeah, yeah no kidding we're, yeah we're close and uh, his name is Salam and uh, yeah and so it was me and Salam like bebopping around and ironically I don't know if it's ironic but like coincidentally Salam, he he had spent most of his time in the U.S. in Kansas City, so huh. we were like just these two Kansas City guys, bebopping around. So Kabul. he's an American Army regular guy. No, he was a contractor. Okay, who, he was in his like late fifties then, uh -huh. and had by the time I got there, he'd been back in Afghanistan for a few years. You know, like three years already. So what's the day to day? What are the stories? Like you're you're going out and you're you get an you get an idea that, oh this we can go meet with this guy develop a relationship with this guy and he'll give us information on this person who we suspect is working with the Taliban in this province or is is running drugs along the heroin highway. So this is regional, like you, you're not you're not solving you know countrywide problems necessarily, but in your province or whatever you call it, this is the job. Well, f yes, and for me, I was like 
in this weird spot where I was sort of at the top of the chain because I was working with the director of intelligence and his job was to tell like the general in charge and the ambassador and people like that, hey, all these people we're working with at the highest level, here's what they're really up to. So you're Here, dealing with spooks. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm like sitting down. My, my boss, my commander over there, he referred to it as thug ant. So like in intelligence, you have all this stuff that ends in ant, like signals intelligence is yeah. the guys who listen to stuff. Sure. He made up the term or, or heard it from somebody, thugant, and yeah. he, he described it as, uh, later he told me, you were building relationships with thugs in order to get information on other thugs. Right. That was my job. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. And so, so, so I was convinced, like, that's not combat. I went to meetings. Now, it took me years and it took me, then therapy later for somebody to be like, so you were by yourself in the most dangerous place on the planet for hours at a time. Nobody knew where you were and nobody could come and save you with people who might want to kill you. Or could kill you. Could kill, yeah. How many people are you traveling with? Just you and Salam? Usually just me and Salam. And you were, you were uh, told it would be safe? No, nobody ever was like, it's safe. They're just <laughs> like, we, we, need, we need to find this out. And but so you're ready to fire. Yeah, like you're, you're pretty much, like you always know where the exits are. You, you have a plan. You know, how many guys are in this room? How many guys are between this room and my vehicle? Can I take all three of these guys? And Oh, yeah. So you don't know if you're walking into a Taliban trap necessarily. Right. Yeah, or or uh, all, there's all sorts of other bad actors, narco-traffickers and different terrorist groups and, you know, stuff like that. And so. you talking to all these people? Yeah, making friends, man. That was my gig. Opium movers? Yeah, yeah, a lot of that. Aspiring terrorist groups? Yeah, I mean, or just people who were like, they could get paid a lot by one of the groups. I mean, you, you'd be worth a lot, yeah. right? You know, and uh, so you're just constantly aware of your surroundings, and it's it, it brings all of your senses to bear. You know, I talked to Chris Hedges years ago about um, you know war is a force that gives us meaning, mm. which seems like you know that that is sort of the zone of trauma that you're dealing with. That mm -hmm. you're you know, you're at you're you're in such a hyper cortisol adrenalized state all the time that anything else seems less than yeah and you you build up this weird kind of hyper vigilance that you you can't shake and and you crave you crave and you you and also you come to understand it you know like it's it's simple right it's i i describe it i don't i don't really play golf much but like this analogy mm -hmm. works you know like a golfer you know they go out they got like eight clubs in their bag right and like different hole different distance they're going to select a different club that's like regular life and then you you go to a place like afghanistan you need like three clubs like one is anger one is fear one is boredom you know yeah. and then you come home and you're supposed to start using all these other clubs again but it was much simpler and your brain understood only really needing the three and you're also worried if i start using these others somebody might kill me, <laughs> you know, because your brain has learned. That's what I had to learn in therapy is my brain had learned that if I let my guard down, uh, that like, I, my, like, that's what it learned in Afghanistan is that if I let my guard down, I will be kidnapped and killed. And, it, and I just had to do a lot of work in therapy to unlearn that. Did you almost get kidnapped and killed? Uh, no, but I constantly thought I was going to be. But, but did you a, see that happening to people? Uh, no, I guess when I think about it, no, but it, it was like every day, I mean, you, you obviously, you hear about it because people, they don't say it's going to be Where safe. Where were you? I was in Kabul, but okay. I, I went to some other places. They don't say it's going to be safe, but what they do say is, this is what happened to this person. Right. This is what, you know, and it's, for me, fortunately, it was for the most part, not people I knew personally, but 
you know, they just, you're aware that it's happening. But you hear bombs in the distance? Yeah, you can, occasionally you hear that. And So, how long were you there? I was only there four months, which was another reason why I kept telling myself, Psh, yeah, that's nothing. I couldn't, it couldn't be PTSD. No shit. You know, um, because then I got buddies who like did multiple tours and spent years there. And, and so then you're telling yourself, well, how can, how can I claim the mantle of PTSD if, if, if they, they're okay. Yeah. And then you find out later, like none of them are okay. Right. <laughs> you know, yeah, so, yeah. but you don't find that out till later. Yeah, I mean, and I, I mean, it's a big shift, you know. I mean, no matter what time or what you're doing, I mean, to to operate in that much, have to manage that much fear. Yeah, and and, and the thing is, is at the time, you don't recognize it as fear. Like at first, when I first got there, yeah. it felt like fear, and then after a while, it's like you said, it's your job, and it's what people around you are doing, and it's incredible what can become normal. I can't imagine. And then also. I kind of I, I loved it a little. Sure. Well, that's the thing. How is that not how being jacked like that? Yeah. Getting away with it. Right. And and exactly. And like you you feel like particularly like in my gig where I was uh, oftentimes not wearing a uniform and, and like in the army, anything that's not the same as everyone else is instantly the coolest thing, right? right. So like <laughs> yeah, yeah, that right. guy doesn't have to shave, and that guy is wearing like uh, you know a gray fleece. Yeah that guy must be a fucking ninja, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, And so <laughs> yeah, yeah. some days that was me and I felt like a cowboy, you know? Yeah. And there were moments that were really scary where I realized like, oh, I'm sitting I'm sitting down with this person. I realize who the person is halfway through. This is a person, oh, we're investigating this person. He knows we're investigating him. Yeah, this might be a trap, all that stuff. And other other things that, um, that happened that uh, at the time you think they're normal. And then as the years like go by- like being in a convoy and uh, at the time there was a thing where suicide bombers were jumping onto vehicles and detonating themselves yeah. and I'm in a convoy and uh, and I'm I'm in like the passenger seat so next to the driver yeah. and and you feel somebody jump onto the side and we're in like really slow moving traffic when it happens and just out of instinct you pull up your rifle and you zero in and you look right and you're ready to fire but just thinking I got no time at all yeah and fortunately for me right before I did I realized like it was a little boy looking oh, back God. at me so it can be little stuff like yeah, that yeah. where you're like uh, you can't yeah. help but think about how that could have gone and yeah. so that's the sort of thing that would visit me every night in my nightmares but mostly it was, my nightmares were where I did get kidnapped and killed um, the thing that you're most afraid of yeah, the thing that I spent so you come every day home there trying after to after four months and what you go back to Kansas City. Yeah, come back and uh, go within two weeks. I'm back at my law firm trying to care about writing legal memos for corporate clients. And when do you do your first? Uh, uh, when do you do your first political thing? So I came back in uh, early '07, and I I started running for the state legislature in August of '07. Um, is when I really started. I'd like announced, but like I really started running in yeah. August. So it wasn't long. Like I got, in looking back, I realized I got right into distracting myself, is what I did. I recently learned the term overfunctioning. Yeah. And, and I guess that's what I was doing. Yeah. Um, I, I call it multitasking. Sure. That'll work. You know, <laughs> uh, they, for me, they used to call it working really hard. Uh, it was yeah, supposed yeah. to be a compliment. Sure. And I yeah. I'm always busy. I'm always busy, man. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. and that was me because it was, now I look back and I realize like, what I wasn't going to do was spend time with myself, right? I was yeah. going to constantly. And the trauma thing of seeking redemption, which, you know, there's an element of, with trauma, there's an L, I've learned that 
there's an instinct to want to redeem yourself. But then when you add on to that sort of the survivor's guilt part of the military anyway. Mm. Um, redeem I, yourself how? I thought, well, look, I, to me, the, here's the story I would tell myself. I did four months. Um, I got friends who were still there. There were people who when I got there, they were there and they were still there when I left, like Salam. Uh, and there were... You know, so oh, redeem yourself to them. Yeah, and to myself so because I hadn't shame. I hadn't done enough. Right. Um, and really, I recognize now, like there was no nothing I could have ever. Like I tried to go back at one point. Yeah. Um, really. Yeah, and, and but there was no way I actually ever would have felt that I had done enough. And it was only like through therapy and everything that I realized, like, oh, I actually did quite a lot. I did you enough. choose to leave or you got sent home? Uh, out of Afghanistan. Yeah. It, my tour ended. Oh, um, okay. And. Uh, um, and yeah, and I remember, I, I, so it's a long story that's in the weeds and boring, but base, but the short version is I was part of like a, a program where it was like an individual augmentee from a unit where I got sent in to fill a spot for a while. Yeah. And, and most of those tours were actually like three months and I stayed a little extra time, but. So that's weird. So you have a, a, a guilt that you didn't do enough mm -hmm. and that, you know, you met guys over there that you saw as, as in a tougher situation than you and they didn't get out. Yeah, and uh, and then you know, and and then just the the sort of adrenaline loss that you know you're no longer engaged. I think that was really the the nature of 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 what I talked to Hedges about a million years ago was just say all of a sudden you're you're just here and, and life is not mm -hmm. a, operating at that level. It's like it's I can't a, imagine just sitting in a law firm. <laughs> fucking, I I remember when a partner came in and was like. Uh, you know, this is really important. And we both <laughs> we both kind of knew I wasn't going to be there long when I go, is anybody going to die? <laughs> and and we kind of looked at each other like, yeah, I'm probably going to get a new job. Like, I wasn't like fired, but it was like, this is nuts. So then I left and I became a trial lawyer for a while and that was like that a exciting? little more fun. It was, it was more fun than that, you know, like representing real clients and feeling like I was doing something good. To me, I was like, that's what a soldier would do. He would represent like working people sure. who got hurt. Yeah. And and so it was two things. It was what you just described. It was this is not the adrenaline. This doesn't have the meaning. It was adrenaline, but I thought in my head meaning, right? Yeah, right. And then the other part was I had to prove to myself that I wasn't irredeemable. And that, and the for me that became I have to get into politics. I have to make these huge changes, and that will be worthy of well, right. And also that's what drove you initially. That you know that if what you're telling me you went into the service because you wanted to get people out or help people out that yeah. they, there was a that was in there right and that you grew up in a public service civic service yeah. household where people help people is a premium put on that which in a you know in a liberal way right yeah yeah so so then i guess, i guess that in light of that you just kind of picked up the agenda again yeah but also you you brought up sorry that you know that you were out on the other end of policy so that yeah. was also an incentive it made me very righteous about it all right it was what, like what was the turn of events on that like when did you realize that oh you could change policy uh, in terms of like this isn't right or like this is screwed up so i remember the first thread that i drew between the two was so i remember being in afghanistan and you know the first thing you notice at that time is like wow pretty much none of the vehicles i'm in are armored like almost ever yeah <laughs> you know and, and that was if you I mean, you were i think doing air america at that sure. time like sure I'm sure you were talking about but yeah it like lot. people were sending people they were sending stuff to armor the cars exactly right 
That's I a, remember that. Yeah. And so so that was like very clear. But then other stuff like missions through really dangerous territory where we were supposed to have helicopters, but they would say, and I don't even know if this was right, but yeah. what they would say is, well, most of that equipment's in Iraq, so you're going over the road. And I and I just remember thinking like, oh, this is what it's like to be on the receiving end of politically driven decisions, right? Right. And I had never, like, no politician could have made a decision that took food off my family's table or anything growing up. So right. that was the first time for me. And then I come that home. you put it together. Right. Yeah. And I come home and, and I was already going to run, but and now it had changed my thinking. So I remember at the time, a bunch of people had been cut off Medicaid in my state. Yeah. And it was being crowed about by the Republican governor at the time as this great accomplishment in budget cutting. And to me, right or wrong, I saw like a through line. I was like, that is... That, that is just the same as sending people without armor that they need. Now we're taking credit for something that's just hurting people who are already hurting. And, and so by the time I got to the legislature, I was just, every Republican I met was Donald Rumsfeld until proven otherwise. Right. You know, I, I, <laughs> yeah. I was just so angry. Yeah. You know, and, and I was on a mission. And, and how, how was that satisfying you, the legislature in Missouri? Uh, at times, briefly, but not. Like, I mean, I did two terms and then I ran for statewide office. So no, <laughs> you know, like I and I started running for statewide office in my second term, right, for Secretary of State. So I, I pretty quickly, like in my first term, I got a few things done, nothing major because I was in the minority party, and yeah, I felt really stymied and and that sounds like off. a nightmare. So was, I mean, you've got like that's the other thing that people don't really realize is like who the fuck would want to do politics now. Which like, is, and we're finding yeah. that, like, you know, like the the level of corruption possible, and just craven behavior, and 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 short term grifting, mm-hmm. and low ball, low money grifting. Yeah, well, but I don't think it's ever been different. But anyone who is who has you know ideals or ideologically progressive, it's like, why would they even fucking bother? And I and I, I imagine you've you've asked yourself these questions. Someone's got to do something, but I, I it doesn't seem like anyone's got follow through. And it seems like there's a generation of of sort of uh, self serving people. There's there's, there's still, a lot of pro- there's a lot of issues. Yeah, yeah, right. but but I mean, like, there's still a lot of really great people doing things. But but I think what's definitely true about what you're saying is that we are at a moment where there's so much cynicism, or maybe the word is like there's so little progress. Uh, to your point, well, that really talented people are like, well, I'm not going to do it. If I want to make the world better, I'm not going to do it there. I'm going to do it over sector. here. Yeah, yeah. But but also there there it's it's pretty out in the open now that there's a fairly organized ideological move towards minority rule in a shameless way. That there yeah. there is you know a a fascistic element that has been in hiding that that turns out to be most of the Republicans' agenda for 30 years. Well, and it's worldwide right now. That's that's the connection i think we don't make often enough in america well you mean autocrats and yeah yeah like we think of it as like trumpism but that's trumpism i mean sure most places live under autocrats right like ukraine versus putin you know hungary you know all these places where china yeah where there's this battle yeah a battle going on between turkey exactly like they just had cpac in hungary right like so we as Americans like to think of everything as like, oh, this is our thing, but no, we're we well, are a battle. This wasn't never our thing, and right. sadly, most Americans are going like, what are you talking about? Right, and it, <laughs> we're just we are a battleground in this in this worldwide fight. Yeah, and uh, and so in in one way, like hopefully that is animating to a lot of people. But the problem is, is that 
it also can be really defeating. Yeah, I don't know? know if it's explained properly. I don't know that most people feel the urgency. I think that most people, if people, I, I've decided in this country, if people are okay, they're fine. It's enough. They don't yeah. have to engage in civic responsibility almost on any level. And they'll complain about paying their taxes, even if they're good people. Mm-hmm. But, you know, until something becomes plain, and usually it's too late, Yeah, I just don't want to be, I mean, they're already loading people onto trucks who are suspected to not be Americans. Yeah. Like, so if the trucks are already in use, it really comes down to who's operating the trucks. That's, that's, <laughs> yeah. that's grim, yeah. but you know what I'm saying? Well, yeah, for a long time, I tried to really try and stay sunny and optimistic about it and be like, no, we're going to... And this was really when I was still very much in the fight with Let America Vote, which is the organization mm-hmm. I had started and everything. And and so what choice did I have, right? And also I was still in my own, like, I had this idea of myself and I hadn't gotten any treatment yet. So like this is... If I wasn't in this fight, what was I, Right. And I'm not saying like that, therefore, mental health has everything to do with why you're in politics, but I am saying that uh, now it is hard for me not to have a much more sober look at it and say like, yeah, it we're getting to a place where if we don't have big changes, it's just going to get really, really, it's going to get harder and harder to make big changes. It's, well, it's going to get horrendous. So you, you like when you came close with the Senate after this, after yeah. this so you were on the trajectory, but so now we're back where we started that now, you, you know, what was the moment where you were like, I, oh, was the suicidal ideation or just yeah. the process of it? It just, it just got to the point where I remember, I remember just saying, I don't want to do this anymore. I was exhausted all the time. So I, because you can't manage your brain. Yeah. And look, I was basically running for president because I was. In in the course of a, about a year, I was giving speeches in forty six yeah. states. I was in Iowa, New Hampshire all the time. Gave you know this. It, the moment where I knew something was really wrong was I gave the keynote speech uh, in Nashua, New Hampshire, at the McIntyre Shaheen dinner, which is like the it's it's like the big annual Democratic night, right? Where and yeah. so like the year before me, I think the keynote was uh, Hillary Clinton, and the year. Uh, after me, it was like Joe Biden, and one of those yeah. years it was Elizabeth Warren, and then this year it was me. So it was like this was the event. This was the right. like, you were you were you were the guy. Yeah, like it was live on our C-SPAN Road yeah. to the White House and stuff. And it, I don't know if I was the guy. This is our hope, but, but it was my moment to to audition for that. Yeah, to have uh, yeah, people right. go like, okay, he is or is not the guy. Yeah, and I I crushed it. Like it would, I crushed it, and I knew I'd crushed it, and I felt. And and at that time in my life, like and I, and this is probably something you can relate to as a performer who has dealt with mental health stuff. I felt good when I was performing, and no other time. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that means you might be doing it for the wrong reason. Right. Yeah. And, and but I didn't know that then. Yeah. I just thought I must continue to be performing, yeah. and or in my case, fighting the good fight, yeah. engaged in this way. And and at this point, I had needed this dosage to get higher and higher and higher for it to work and so now like i give keep, this huge speech keep killing yeah yeah and 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 with bigger and bigger stages yeah and at this point i've also like i've sat down with obama and he's at least been somewhat encouraging about the idea of me running yeah. and all this so i'm like i should be right where i want to be it's the zenith of my professional career 
And like, you know, the next day I get on, I, I go to get on the plane to go home and the TSA guy checks my ID and he's like, oh, it's the next president of the United States. So like, I should be there, right? <laughs> yeah. And I get on the plane <laughs> and the endorphins just drop out of me and I feel just as empty as I had felt before. And that was the first time that I was like, okay, something may be really wrong. Because, like, if this won't last 24 hours, yeah, uh, then something's really wrong. And and then I went to, uh, I got invited to go give a speech in Hawaii. So my family and I went to Hawaii, and I, yeah. I actually slowed down for a few days because it's Hawaii. Sure. And I realized, like, I'm exhausted all the time because I didn't sleep. I had terrible nightmares every night. And I didn't sleep. I was you know, going too hard at everything. The nightmares of being kidnapped and killed? Yeah, like night terrors, sleep paralysis, and all that fun stuff. Jeez. Yeah, it was no fun. Um, but I didn't know. I just thought that's what... After a while, you're just like, I guess this is what I am. You forget that you didn't used to be like that. And then my campaign manager at the time, Abe, I I, I was like, so what if, I, what if I didn't run? And he's like, well, you can go back home and run for mayor. And I grabbed that shit like a life raft. I was just like, oh. And in my head, I was like, that's going to fix everything. I'm going to go home. I'm going to go to the VA. And I'm going to become mayor. And I'm going to do great things for my neighbors. And like, so you're going to go VA. You're going to go deal with the shit. Yeah, that's what I told myself. I, I wasn't ready to tell myself it was PTSD. But I was ready to say, there's something wrong. And I should go to the VA. Oh, so you thought it might be you know, uh, depression, bipolar. Well, who yeah. Knows? Like, I was like, ah, maybe I just need to talk to somebody. Yeah, right? Like, right. I didn't know what it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I was like, but I'll, re- again, redemption. I'm going to go and I'm going to like lower the crime rate and I'm going to in my hometown that I sure, you know we sure. just talked about I'm fifth yeah. generation there. Yeah. I can and get results. I get results I can see them. That's yeah. what I kept telling myself. I'll get results and I'll see them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And started running for mayor. It was going great like I mean but you know if you are going to run for president you decide to run for mayor like you really should be the front runner for mayor like otherwise <laughs> what are you doing? Well that's the other thing is like you, like it's just it's another layer of pressure on yourself. Cuz yeah. now you're going to have to deal with you know, I just disappointed the fucking the 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 old boys network that's mm-hmm. about to deliver me to the big house or the big the big yeah or like at a more basic level because you're nailing it because what I used to say to my wife all the time is I feel like I'm disappointing everyone so it was like yeah. I'm disappointing my son because I'm not around I'm disappointing but I'm also if I am around I'm disappointing because when you're unlike when you run statewide when you run for mayor nobody's like I'm sure he's busy because they know you live in town right, <laughs> you know? right, so like yeah. you're supposed to be everywhere yeah and. Kansas City has a violent crime problem. So I instantly, being hypervigilant and having this soldier mentality of yeah. I'm going to protect people, I start researching you know, urban violence. And I'm not even mayor yet, and I'm running for it like it's sheriff. Like I'm staying up. I can't yeah, sleep because yeah. I'm thinking about people getting murdered. And you're having nightmares. And I'm having nightmares. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and so that's when... Uh, and then I didn't keep I didn't keep my promise to myself of going to the VA because I go to fill out the questions, and I'm like, I still want to be president. And I'm like, I can't answer on it. Like, I can't. Yes, I'm paranoid. But it's paranoid. funny because you knew you weren't ready. You knew you could. You, like, yeah, see, that's like, that'd be one of those things with me. I, I wasn't in the service, uh, obviously, but was, I'd have to ask, like, what is my fear? Yeah. And at that point, my fear was slowing down because then I'd be, it'd just be me. And yeah, me. my fear is me. 100%. Yeah. 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 And, and so I, and then that's when the campaign's going Great, like I the mayor. 
Yeah, like I, yeah. I, you know, you don't usually get to run for mayor of Kansas City and talk about it on like late night with Seth Meyers, right? It was unfair the advantage I had by having already had this platform. So I, I should have been, and I kept telling myself I should be thrilled at this. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. you know, people always want name recognition. Yeah. I had like a hundred percent face recognition. Yeah, like people would drive down the street and honk like for mayor. Yeah, they're like, I'm voting for you. I'd knock on a door to a voter. They'd come out with my book and be like, you know, with my first book, can you sign the? It was like. I should have, because I'd never been anything but the underdog until then. I should have loved it, but I was but did hating you think, life. Did you think, like, you know, the, the big shot the Democrat machine was sort of like, we lost that kid. <laughs> he was so close, now he was going to be fucking mayor? Oh, the headline on CNN.com the day I announced was, potential 2020 candidate Jason Cantor announces for dot, 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 mayor? <laughs> like, <laughs> oh, no. So now you just, like, now, now you get this whole other weird shame, um, you know, uh, yeah. storm on you. And like you said, this sense that, am I doing this for the right reasons? Am I acting out of fear because I'm afraid of what's yeah. going right, on right, with right. me? And, uh, and so then it all, and, okay, really good story. Uh, yeah. um, so campaign's trucking along, but yeah. I'm not. Yeah. And I'm increasingly you know feeling like a burden to my family and all these things so this story doesn't start out funny but it ends funny uh so i finally go to the va yeah and i i go in there and uh, of course i'm getting recognized a lot which in this case it, you know not my ideal it's not like the best place to be well known yeah is where you're showing up because you're suicidal at the va so i'm like pulling my hat down and everything and i i sit down with this guy who's doing my paperwork for me and i'm answering his questions yeah and, and he's like seems like maybe you need to see somebody today. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, I think so. So he takes me down to emergency. I answer some more questions. Next thing I know, I'm sitting in this windowless room with like a stainless steel toilet. The nurse is sitting there yeah. with her back to me. She ain't leaving. Right. Like she'll turn her back when I got to pee. But like, right. this is suicide watch. Yeah. And I'm in scrubs that are four times too big. They've taken away like all of my possessions. Yeah. And everybody's kind of recognizing me. They're doing double takes, yeah. which is I'm like a little humiliated yeah. by it. And probably a lot humiliated by it. And then this psych resident, this brand new psych resident comes in to talk to me, who's like, I guess he's on duty at the moment. Yeah. And it's pretty clear right away that he doesn't have any idea who I am. And at first, like, big relief. And we're talking for like 30 minutes, and I tell him my symptoms and stuff that I'd never really talked to anybody about. And then uh, he, like, we're wrapping up, and he's going to let me go home because yeah. I had said I got to go pick my son up. And right. I think he figured, well, he's not going to kill himself today. He's got a yeah. plan. <laughs> yeah. And he goes, uh, do you have, like, a particularly stressful job or something? And I go, well, I'm in politics. And he's like, what does that mean? So I kind of try to explain it. And he goes, well, has it been like particularly stressful the last, you know, however long? And I was like, well, yeah, I mean, I, I was I was getting ready to run for president, uh, but now I'm, you know, I'm running for mayor, but I'm going to quit that tomorrow and start hopefully getting help here. And he, he goes, well, wait a minute. What do you mean you were going to run for president? And he goes, president of what? And I'm like, of the United States. <laughs> now, remember, I'm sitting there with like, my arms wrapped around my knees in like pajamas they gave me that are way too big yeah. and he goes he's like well, what what does that mean you were gonna run for president i was like I, you know i was going to iowa new hampshire a lot giving a lot of speeches raising money yeah. and he goes well who told you you could run for president and now i'm like pissed that yeah. this guy is doesn't, know you. doesn't believe me yeah, you know? yeah. And, and so i go i don't know man i don't know what to tell you like i spent you know an hour and a half with obama in his office he seemed to think it was a pretty good idea and this dude takes a beat and then he goes how often would you say it is that you hear voices and <laughs> that, was, that was my first day at the va and the next day i announced that i was stepping back from everything and he had so, no idea who you were 
No, I think, but then they let me go home. So either he Googled me or somebody was like, you know, that's Jason Kander. Yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah. something said like, oh, that's, he's not a crazy person. That's who, hilarious. I mean, he maybe he is a crazy person, but he's not it's, that way. It's humbling. Oh, for sure. Yeah. So, uh, so then you pull out of the race. Mm-hmm. Like drop out of public life. Like drop, like people. I, Dramatic. Yeah. Like I, and then like people would see me out. Yeah, and so I grew a beard and would wear a hat just oh, to like. Oh no! So you're doing the whole thing? Well, just because it wasn't even. It was just like small. It's like, but it's a small city, so the people are just. You're like, what happened? Well, the yeah, the worst part <laughs> was that everybody was awesome about it when they'd see me, except everybody. You know, when you tell the world I'm uh, I'm suicidal, everybody feels like it's their job to make sure you don't kill yourself. Sure. So you're like maybe feeling just perfectly fine and you're picking out like avocados in the yeah, grocery yeah. store and somebody leans in and they're like the world is a better place because you're in it and, yeah and then like you have to console them like i'm really okay i'm just picking out avocados and so that was and so I, yeah i grew out the beard to look like yeah. less like me to be less often recognized Yeah, but then when they do recognize you like he's really let himself go you well know? it was like the reaction was like that's Jason Kander. He died. You know, they didn't say that, but that's like what it felt like. Right. like. Like I felt like they were seeing a ghost. And then I felt like I had to project like, no, no, I'm going to be okay. When I didn't know if I was going to be okay. I like, How long did it take you to shake that shit? What did you do? You did cognitive? Cognitive processing therapy and, and prolonged exposure, which have you ever done prolonged exposure? No, I don't know what that is. It was... So cognitive processing therapy is what people think of as like, you know, it's analytic talk therapy. Sure. Like yeah, yeah. Having my symptoms explained to me yeah yeah like going to school right you've done it's making different choices yes and yeah. and then prolonged exposure was the really shitty part which was uh sit there and tell the stories i had avoided telling or thinking about record like with my therapist record a voice memo on my phone of it it'd be like 45 minutes i'd close my eyes he'd ask questions as if he never heard the story and, you know, and I would, like, re-experience. I would get, like, you know, I'd sweat. Approaching and houses with Salam and, and, yeah. and all that stuff. And, like, my adrenaline would spike. like Really? You know, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and you'd, like, you're, you go into fight. Like, yeah. fight or fight, you go into yeah. fight. And, um, and then my homework during the week was to put in my headphones, listen to the voice memo I'd recorded, close my eyes. I wasn't allowed to do anything else. And just listen to it and then do it again the next week. And it would unlock other parts of it that I had kind of locked away. So you'd hear your voice and where you were at when you were going through it? Yeah, and also but also hear myself tell the story uh-huh. Uh-huh. and it would and then it would unlock other details of the story and so then I had to come back in and so that, tell it again. That's sorta of like EMDR in a way. I think so, just without without the lights and the and the Well it's sort of like stuff. where you at now with where you started. Do you, like, you, is is the process of it. It's like you go through the thing. So the, the actual listening to yourself even though any, if you compare EMDR, EMDR to anything, there's EMDR people that are like, no, it's a specific thing with lights or buzzers, and you, you know, but but in the sense that you're kind of re-entering the trauma zone over and over again. That's what I meant earlier when I said yeah. you still got to go to it. Yes, and 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 so I would do that, and then over time, I remember the first time that I came in and said to my therapist, whose name is Nick, I said. Hey, can we do a new story? Because I'm bored with this one. Yeah. And he was like, "Great, boredom is the goal." Like, right? And that's what I realized. Like, oh, the whole idea is to no longer have this have a grip on me. And I had been avoiding it for so long 
And I, here's the, one of the most interesting things was I found out that the reason, a big part of the reason I was having the night terrors was because I spent my whole day trying to fend off all these intrusive thoughts and memories and not think about them. And then when I was asleep, my guard was down. And so they would all rush in because my brain's like, we're dealing with this shit. No shit. And then when I started doing this. Is that your idea or is that what the therapist well, I, told you? I learned that in huh. therapy, yeah. And, and, and like for years I thought, and I even wrote in my first book, like the way I deal with, because uh, I didn't call it PTSD. I just was like, oh, I got some issues, but nothing right. in the first book. And I wrote, like, I just don't watch war movies or movies about kidnapping yeah. or whatever. But that, that wasn't really working because I actually needed to watch those and process that stuff so that at night I didn't. And it turned out like once I started doing that, nightmares decreased a bunch. Well, it's interesting too because like when you hold it in your brain like that or you don't acknowledge it, it's like the the truth is you, you got through it. So like the more you process it, you're processing it from the from the place of a guy that made it through. As opposed to the guy who's still in it. Exactly. Uh. And yeah. My great uncle said to me when I started therapy, he said- The composer? Yeah. He said, therapy is just getting a master's degree in yourself. And it was one of the <laughs> yeah. smartest things. What I've do you do with said. that degree? <laughs> Anything I, you want. Yeah. Yeah. You, you enjoy your life is what <laughs> yeah, you do. Right, right, you know, right. Most of the time. Well, and, great, man. And yeah. all, a lot of this is all in the book. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it, the book is just basically my journey to post-traumatic growth set against the wild adventure of, you know, uh, an undiagnosed psychiatric disorder while you're running for president, president. <laughs> you know just your standard garden variety coming of age tale yeah uh, of a young and, kid from missouri yeah and and you know and now like i work i'm president of national expansion at this nonprofit that deals with veterans homelessness and veterans oh, suicide veterans that's community project on, yeah and always it's, busy it's a great way for me to do public service and i'm still in politics like i I have a podcast still. We're on a podcast. I'm going to plug it. Majority 54. But I'm not like, I don't feel like I got to run for office in order to be making a difference. Like, Well, I mean, what do you think about, like? well, I mean, you, you're probably going to. I might one day, yeah. And I'm not trying to be cagey. Like, yeah. I, I, the difference now is I used to constantly obsessively plan about the future because then I didn't have to be in the intolerable present. And now I'm enjoying the present. And mm. I'm like, yeah, maybe I'll do that one day. But like, I'm coaching Little League and I'm playing baseball and I'm doing this work that I care about at Veterans Community Project and I'm home yeah. and uh, I'm enjoying the shit out of it. And so, you know, maybe one day, like, when. You'll, you'll, that one day, that, that, that party that wants to save the world. Yeah, maybe well, I could jump back into some world saving. <laughs> yeah, well, right exactly. now I'm. We're going to need it, man. We're yeah. gonna need it. Yeah. So think hard. <laughs> no yes. pressure. I will spend all this time resting and thinking. <laughs> Thanks for talking, Jason. Thank you. Jason Kander. That was good. His book, Invisible Storm, a soldier's memoir of politics and PTSD, is available tomorrow, July 5th, wherever you get books. Also, you can check out Jason's nonprofit by going to veteranscommunityproject.org. So listen, folks, uh, we're going to do something new here. We're going to we're going to handle this part of the show a little differently. All right. We're going to do like a, a little preview of what's coming up on the show this week and what people can expect in the new bonus content on WTF Plus. Just hang out. I'll tell you in a minute. 
Okay, listen to me. Here's what's going on. On Thursday's show, Jerry Stahl. Jerry Stahl, many people know, he's the author of Permanent Midnight and about five or six other books. He's one of my best friends. He's got a, a new book coming out called 999, and that's N-E-I-N-N-E-I-N-N-E-I-N. Yes, he's coming out with a, a fun uh, romp through, uh, through the concentration camps. The, the subtitle, the subheading is One Man's Tale of Depression, Psychic Torment, and the Bus Tour of the Holocaust. Can always count on Jerry for the deep, dark humor. And uh, I don't think we've had the full hour conversation treatment. And I talk to Jerry all the time. We hang out. We eat. We, he comes with me. We do, you know, he watches me do comedy. And I've, you know, he's got me through, through some of the most difficult times of my life. And uh, it was great. It was great to uh, sit and talk to him. In, on the mics for the long one. Yeah, so look forward to that happening on Thursday. If you sign up for Acast Plus, we'll have our first bonus content posted, which will be me and my producer, Brendan, giving you some behind-the-scenes details about classic episodes uh, of the show. And here's a, a little teaser, a little taste of uh, me and Brendan riffing. It's not just the common complaint of taking something out of context. It's that we didn't solicit that. You know, right. That's not what we're doing. I mean, if that happens, which it did with Sam Elliott, it's like I I really thought he was going to say like I love that movie. I I mean I right. I, I, <laughs> it's like I asked him because I liked the movie and I thought like well maybe me and Sam can bond about a western and then like I was like wow okay it was such an innocent question I could not believe it and then all of a sudden in the, the eyes of clickbait world in the press it's like i set him up somehow and i'm like i did nothing no and in fact we we, we wouldn't want that to be a um a thing we do because it's i'll be perfectly honest it is we we've been told there are guests who won't come on the show now because of that interview so it doesn't help us if you want to come see me live i will be in Vegas on Friday and Saturday, July 15th and 16th at Wise Guys. In LA, I'll be a Dynasty typewriter for two shows, Saturday and Sunday, July 23rd and 24th. I'll be at Just for Laughs in Montreal for my gala on Saturday, July 30th. I'll also be doing solo shows up there on July 28th and 29th. Uh, more to come on those. Then I've got tour dates coming up in August and September in Columbus, Ohio, Indianapolis, Indiana, Louisville, Kentucky, Lincoln, Nebraska, Des Moines, Iowa, Iowa City, Iowa, Tucson, Arizona, Phoenix, Arizona, Boulder, Colorado, and Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Then in October, I'm in London, England, and Dublin, Ireland. Go to WTFPod.com slash tour for all dates and ticket info. Uh, hopefully, I'm going to get Lara bites to come with me on some of those gigs because i got to start tightening it up got to start uh, uh uh whittling it down to about 70 minutes from the uh, hour and a half from the 90 plus i'm doing now again please folks listen listen to me spend time with people today if you were thinking about isolating okay okay i will play some guitar for you
Boomer lives. Monkey and LaFonda. Cat angels everywhere.